The following message was given by Shelby Murphy on Sunday, May 29th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. Shelby, I'm one of the uh, I'm one of the pastors here, um, and today we'll be continuing our brief jump through the 90s, uh, the Psalm 90s, that is. Um, and yes, we have been looking back at the corresponding year from the 1990s, and we will continue to do so today as we look at Psalm 94. So, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Psalm 94. Uh, we're going to be there. Uh, this morning. And uh, after a, a few um, comments from last week, um, let me just make this preface. Uh, I realize that for many of you, uh, you weren't even thoughts yet in the 90s. Um, for, for some of you, uh, you, you, you think the 90s just happened yesterday. And for the rest of us, we're still stuck in the 90s. Uh, but for those of you who, who did not live the 90s, uh, I promise to, to, to go slow. Um, so what was going on in 1994? Well, Shelby was graduating uh, high school and uh, moving out to West Texas to start his college career um, out there. Uh, most of the fall of that year would see me pledging a quasi-prestigious uh, show band out there called the Cowboy Band. Um, let me just say, rodeo culture is alive and well, my friends. Um, and this band was the, the live band at most of the rodeos um, there in, in Texas. Uh, you haven't experienced a true rodeo uh, until you've witnessed wild bovine milking or watched kids try and catch greased pigs. Uh, truly, truly entertaining. Um, but in 1994, uh, no one told me life was going to be that way. My job was a joke. I was broke. My love life, DOA. I felt like I was stuck in second gear. It hadn't been my day, my week, my month. Can anyone guess what came out in 1994? If you know those lyrics and you know that Friends premiered on NBC in 1994. Now, if you, if you didn't have Friends, you could just turn on the TV and now you did. Uh, um, it, it's a beautiful vision of friendship in a silly sitcom that would make some of us who were lonely think we actually had friends. Of course, you then ignored the friends that you did have. Um, and this, this relational um, avoidance would get worse, as 1994 was also the debut of a little distraction called the PlayStation. And so now everyone could save the world from bad guys. They could shoot zombies. They could rescue princesses. They could beat bosses with their thumbs. Um, and while I certainly went through my own PlayStation phase, at this time I was probably more of a movie guy, and one of the biggest movies of the year was this Disney gem, uh, The Lion King. Yes, someone in the first service said, that was that long ago? It's like, yes. Um, which, if you weren't aware, this is a freebie this morning, uh, The Lion King is simply an animated animal version of Hamlet. Um, the villain Scar, if you remember, conspiring to kill his brother the king and kill his son who would be the heir. So there you go, you can tuck that one away. Um, but it wasn't all um, Disney, um, the, all Disney movies and funny sitcoms in 1994. Uh, some of you might remember this event playing out on your TVs, probably more like entertainment than news. But on June 12, 1994, Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman were found stabbed to death outside of Nicole's condo in Los Angeles. Nicole's ex-husband, O.J. Simpson, <clears throat> became a person of, of interest for law enforcement. And some of you rem may remember that um, infamous 
white Bronco car chase as police chased him on the interstate with speeds reaching up to 35 miles an hour. (laughs) I do remember watching it that day along with an estimated 95 million other viewers. It was described as the most famous ride on American shores since Paul Revere. Um, the, the pursuit and arrest and subsequent trial of Simpson were among one of the most publicized events in American history. It was, and still may be, the trial of the century. Simpson was later found not guilty, which, which caused great division uh, along racial lines. But racial tensions were not relegated to um, uh, America's shores alone. On April 6, 1994, a plane carrying the Rwandan and Burundian president were shot down by surface-to-air missiles, ending peace negotiations and, par- and sparking the Rwandan genocide. The genocidal killings began the next day. And between the 7th of April and the 15th of July, a period of 100 days, members of the Tutsi minority ethnic group, as well as, as, as some of the moderate Hutu who were lumped in with them, were slaughtered by armed militia. The most widely accepted estimates are around 500,000 to 600,000 deaths in a span of 100 days. So while many of us were sitting at home watching people who will be there for us when the rain starts to fall, no one was there for the Rwandans. While we were being comforted by faux friends or watching that OJ mess play out on our televisions, these people were being slaughtered in their living rooms. The scale and brutality of that massacre caused worldwide shock But no country intervened to stop those killings. And most of the victims were killed in their own villages or towns, many by neighbors and fellow villagers. A lot of conflict happened in 1994, more than I have time to rehash for you this morning. This was, by and large, looking back on it, a very depressing year no matter where you looked. Sure, you might try and medicate it yourself with some sitcoms or some PlayStation. This was a really tough year to look at. I think it's easy for us sometimes to look at the last few years of our lives with its pandemics and prejudices and and riots, or even the past week with its shootings and its its, um, religious leader abuse, And think that we're living in the worst times. And maybe lose a little bit of um, a perspective. In case it hasn't struck you yet, today's psalm deals with wickedness and despair. What we see in Psalm 94 is God's people under extreme hardships, under extreme persecution, surrounded by wickedness all around them crying out to God to intervene and remembering his promises towards them. It gives us a front row seat to both the the types of wickedness God's people encounter as well as the types of wickedness we should expect to encounter. Like this year, it's, it's full of conflict, which shouldn't surprise us. I don't know if, you, if you've noticed, but God's word seems to come alive to us when we are experiencing conflict and affliction. When we're in the middle of suffering, scripture just seems a little bit more familiar. It just, it just makes sense. Maybe that's just me, but I found that to be true in, in my life. Psalm Psalm 94 continues to answer the questions we find at the end of Psalm 89. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? 
And like last week, this psalm has, has two contrasting sections. We see the wickedness of man in the first half. We see it on display. And then we see the blessings of God on display. It contrasts wicked man against God's chosen people, but, but the contrast isn't so much about their nature as it is about their destiny. And unlike last week, I can't tell you today with certainty who wrote this song. I can't tell you with certainty what the um, immediate context is, um, apart from probably some religious leaders of the day doing some horrific things to the people of God. And the psalmist is probably on the receiving end of some of that abuse. The psalm was written to a group of people experiencing suffering at the hands of their religious leaders. It's a communal lament, but it's also an uh, imprecatory psalm. Fun word to say, and I'm glad I get to say it today. Um, a psalm where the psalmist asks God to punish the bad guys. I call these Chuck Norris psalms. <laughs> the wicked, <laughs> the wicked, unrepentant, getting what's coming to them. And as history would show, these people would continue to experience suffering. They had firsthand knowledge of persecution, exile, slavery, anxiety, depression, death, desperation, heartache. Fill in the blank with whatever affliction you are experiencing right now. They were beat up, worn out, weary. Anyone else feel like that today? Well, this psalm is for us today as well. It's a crushing critique on human nature as well as a soothing balm for battered souls. Let me also add before we jump in, um, I, I chose this text a few weeks ago not knowing what we would be reeling from this week. So it's comforting and it's providential to be in this text today. It's also a little weighty, and I feel it. And I'm sure you will feel it as well as we go along. So let me, let me again pray for our time together, and then we'll jump in. Father, uh, we come to you today a shaky people, seemingly tossed about from one cultural calamity to the next. Help us find our confidence in you today. Give us the sure footing of your word today. Grant us faith and repentance as we hear and believe your promises. Father, I pray that our hearts would turn to you today to find satisfaction. Comfort and console us with your truth today. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see. Help us to know and feel the consolation of your word to us today. Help us to know and feel the comfort of Christ today. We ask this in his name. Amen. Psalm 94. O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? This is a little bit different intro to a psalm than perhaps we're used to. Right out of the gate, God, avenge me. Punish these wicked people. Again, this psalmist has been wronged, and it kind of feels good, doesn't it, to read this? It's, it's cathartic in a way. It's why we like movies where the bad guy gets what's coming to him. And we're about to see a lot of wickedness on display here. And I don't have to tell you, there's a lot of wickedness on display all, all around us. And do we have a right to be upset like the psalmist here? Of course we do. I don't care if we're talking about 1994 or 2022. Every age, every era, 
Human depravity is alive and well, my friends. But notice who the appeal is to here. Notice who it is that's being asked to take action. The appeal isn't to a leader or a politician. We'll see in a moment that those people have actually all failed them. The appeal isn't to the angry mob, but the appeal is to God, crying out for him to rise up and execute his judgment upon the wicked. As we saw last week, wisdom seeks God first. The psalmist would have known this. He would have had the words of Leviticus 19 running through his head. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. The author here knew who God was. He understood that vengeance does not belong to man. It could only belong to someone who sees more than he could ever see hears more than he could ever hear and know more than he can ever know. The psalmist here, right from the beginning, when wronged, appeals to God first. He asks and trusts God to dispense proper justice according to his higher knowledge and his superior timing. He cries out to the God of vengeance, lamenting his delay and imploring him to action. So what are these wicked things the psalmist is lamenting? Verse 4, they pour out their arrogant words. All the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see, the God of Jacob does not perceive. The people that God was calling those in authority to protect, these religious leaders were abusing and killing. And they do all of this under a false premise that God's not really paying attention. God doesn't really perceive. They think they're getting away with it. And while this is certainly a warning for all shepherds abusing their sheep, the false premise described here is one we should all be very familiar with as well. As we saw last week in Psalm 90, our secret sins are going to be exposed. Even if you know God and have been saved by his steadfast love in Christ, we're still prone to this. How is it we think we can momentarily hide from God when we sin? You see, there there are a lot of wicked people out there who deserve God's vengeance. In fact, the number might surprise you because the number is all of us except for Jesus. Jesus. And the text says these people were exulting in this sin. They were reveling in it. Unless you start to think how much better than these people you are, whenever we sin and seek to cover it up and pretend that no one saw it, we're no better than the wicked people described here. You see, we are inherently not a good people. Psalm 14 starts this way. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Paul quotes this psalm in Romans 3, and he goes on to say, Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. 
In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes, which is what we have on display here. No fear of God. I realize that the topic of human depravity is not a popular or attractive one, especially in our culture today when everyone is right in their own eyes. But at some point, we have to face the reality that sin and wickedness is not just something that is outside of us or something that is done to us. But sin and wickedness are inside us as well. We are arrogant people who like to crush others. Maybe not with our fist, but with our words. And these opening verses, yes, they, they condemn these, these, these wicked rulers. But they should also convict us as well. Sure, maybe you haven't killed the widow or the sojourner. Maybe you haven't murdered the fatherless. But when we sin, we're acting the same way as these wicked people, as if God isn't there. And if God doesn't see us, as if God doesn't see us or hear us, we're in denial just as much as these wicked people. Let's keep going here in verse 8. Understand, O dullest of the people. I like the psalmist. He doesn't mince words. Fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord, knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. This is a judgment on everything about these religious leaders, but it's a judgment on us as well. Everything we think we are, everything we've amassed materially or technologically, Everything we think we know, compared to God, all of that, the sum of all human knowledge is what? A breath, an exhale. God hears it all. He sees it all. And God will one day rebuke it all because he knows it all. The ways of the wicked may look like they're prospering while the righteous suffer, but it won't always be this way. God loves justice, and he will dispense it in his own way, in his own time. And here's what this means for you and I today. Don't play around with sin. Sin's going to make a fool of you. Sin's going to make a fool of us all. And the first half of this psalm should cause a healthy fear of God to consume you. Why? Because God sees everything you do in private. He hears the inner monologue going on in your head. And one day his righteous justice will be meted out against all sin. But it's the back half of this psalm that I want to spend the rest of our time on today. Especially in light of what, we've, what God's people have experienced throughout the years, but also in light of what we're experiencing today. What follows now are some of the most comforting and reassuring verses uh, in the Bible, because it reminds us of how the righteous man and the righteous woman are blessed by God. It puts all of the, the wickedness, all of the sin that we encounter in this life, all the suffering we endure, it puts it all in its proper perspective. Listen to the psalmist here as he lists off these blessings. Verse 12, blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law to give him rest from days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage, for justice will return to the righteous 
and all the upright in heart will follow it. In light of everything in the world seemingly being against him, our psalmist reminds himself and the rest of God's people of the blessings we have from, from knowing God. God disciplines us, which is called a blessing here, by the way. God teaches us. How? Primarily through his word. God gives us rest from what? From the troubles of this world. God never forsakes us. God will judge us righteously. Let's just look at a few of these. Verse 12, blessed is the man whom you discipline. Whatever suffering you may be experiencing now, whatever consequence from sin you may be caught up in, whatever, whatever discipline you feel like you are receiving from God, the Bible calls that a blessing. Why? It's God's te- that's God teaching you. Teaching you to put your trust completely in him. Teaching you to find true and complete rest in him midst the cares and the anxieties of this world. To truly put your hope in him to right all the wrongs of this world. I know discipline is a four-letter word sometimes, but here it's called a blessing. And why do we need it? Because like the revelers here, our sins are inclined to wickedness apart from the grace of God. And without God's discipline, you and I cannot endure this world. In all that that word implies, we need to be disciplined, chastised for our wrong ways of thinking and acting. We need discipline to exercise self-control over our sinful appetites. We need discipline to engage in spiritual practices that remind us of all these things. We need God's discipline for perseverance. We should be crying out for the day when wickedness and sin is put in a hole. Till then... We need discipline to keep our spiritual cardio up because as this past week has shown and this psalm reminds us, we're going to run into some hard times. Verse 12, blessed is the man whom you teach out of your law. Discipline and God's word go hand in hand. We need to be steeped in God's word, steeped in his statutes and promises, or else we're not going to make it. So it's a blessing to have God discipline me. It's a blessing to have him teach me through his word. I wish I could exercise enough self-control and discipline on my own, but I can't. I wish that I could instinctively run to him for rest, run to him when times are tough, but I don't always. I'm quick to medicate myself in sitcoms and PlayStation games. And I need to be reminded from God's word that God's not going to forsake me. For, for whatever reason, by God's grace, he said, Shelby, you're one of my people. I need to hear that justice will return to me, return to the righteous. And when my impatient heart screams, when? God says, trust me. Read it right here. I've promised it. One of the many things that strikes me about this psalm is the way that it talks about how God comforts us or consoles us, as some of your Bibles say. 
I am becoming more convinced that part of the reason we don't feel comforted by God sometimes is that someone told us it was a feeling. What if God, what if comfort from God is not a feeling, but rather a foundation? What if comfort is knowing and that helps us mitigate our feelings? Listen to these next set of verses, starting in verse 16. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. I think some of us have a wrong view of comfort. What's the description here? Lord, I feel like I'm slipping. But God says, no, my steadfast love is supporting you. God, I have so many cares. I have so many anxieties. I'm anxious about so many things. Yes, but my consolations are here for you. What if comfort isn't a word from my heart, but it's a word from my noodle so I can handle my heart? What if comfort or consolation is something first that we know, not necessarily something that we feel? My feelings lie to me all the time. God's consolations are not always going to be warm feelings or goosebumps. We all walk around with hearts full of cares, hearts full of anxieties. How is it that God is comforting us? I know we could spend the next year answering that question in, in this book, but let's just, let's just stay in this text. First, in verse 12, he comforts us with his word. Blessed is the man whom you teach out of your law, out of God's word. Why? To give him rest from days of trouble. I would say that's a pretty big one. What else? Verse 18. When I thought my foot slips, what helps me up? We looked at this last week, but the comfort of God comes to us through reminding ourselves of God's steadfast, eternal, covenantal love for his people through Jesus these reminders come through his word, so you see how these work with each other. So immediately here in this Old Testament text, we are given two pretty big ways God consoles his people in the midst of suffering and wickedness seemingly abounding, his word and his steadfast love. And we haven't even gotten to the New Testament consolations of knowing a completed redemption on the cross, knowing a risen Savior, being united with Christ and his people, a full future glory for all those who know Jesus. The Holy Spirit, God's promised helper. When you don't experience the felt comfort, the felt consolation of God, God's word is right here to remind you, I've promised you, Jesus is coming again. I've promised you, every tear will be wiped away. Do you believe my promises or not? When my feelings say I'm not feeling comforted or consoled, I need to go to God's word for comfort. I need the wisdom found in this book. And I'm not saying this is somehow separated from feelings. But I know that I can't trust mine on any given day. And what's more, these consolations will be true for all of eternity. Amen. The things causing us grief now are just for a little while. 
In fact, the pain may be with us for the rest of our short lives. But the promises of God, the truth that he has brought through Christ will be true for all of eternity. He sent us his helper. He's put his spirit in me. So even on the days when I don't feel his presence, do I believe God or not? And sometimes when I'm reading the Bible, a a, a verse jumps out to me. I've probably read verses millions of times, and I just see something new in them all the time. I'm sure it happens to you as well. I mentioned last week how Psalm 90.12 got stuck in my head. Well, Psalm 94.19 is another verse that I clung to during my extended stay in the hospital. When the cares of my heart are many... Your consolations cheer my soul. Some of your translations may say, when my anxious thoughts are many. Needless to say, I I had a few anxious thoughts going on at the time. I was anxious about a few things. The cares of my heart were many. Um, I would read stuff like in um, a Philippians 4, 6, where it says, don't be anxious about anything, and then I would feel guilty about all the things I had to be anxious about. Uh, but as with Psalm 90, 12, it was the second half of this verse that jumped off the page to me, along, and, and along with the other ways we've seen how God consoles us, um, he had another strange one, strange one for me. Um, I'd like to introduce you to another one of my prayer pops. Um, These were Funko Pop figures that helped prompt me to pray um, very specifically during some um, extended stays in the hospital. Um, These were some weirdly comforting consolations from God that helped me get through some difficult times. Um, and today's is, a, is um, a little obscure, so I'm going to take some time to um, uh, explain it. But this right here, this is Stephen Patrick Morrissey. If you don't know him, he is the enigmatic and he is the eccentric lead singer for the British band... Um, um, uh, the Smiths from the early 80s. He was probably my first, um, my first you know, rock star man crush that, that I had. Um, I, was, I was, honestly, I was hooked uh, the first time I, I heard Johnny Mars, just sort of bright, poppy guitar sound, um, uh, juxtaposed with, with, with um, uh, Morrissey's languishing melodies and his seemingly dour Seemingly dour lyrics. I listened to them a lot growing up, and I listened to them a lot in the hospital. And and I've come to realize, revisiting this years later from probably a a more Christian vantage point, that whatever truths I have recognized in God's word having to do with human depravity and despair, with sorrow and brokenness in this fallen world, the seeds were actually sown by Mr. Morrissey years ago. He would tell me that sorrow will come in the end. He told me this as a teenager. And along the way, life's miseries will be myriad. The only romance was a doomed romance. The only love, unrequited. The only person you should detest more than oneself, everybody else. I didn't say it, I didn't say it was a, um, a hopeful worldview, uh, but it's a, um, a dramatic one. He doesn't claim to be a Christian, and there's no gospel to be found in his lyrics, but they're consistent with the fallenness we find in this world. His song, Heaven Knows I'm Miserable Now, puts the finger on the real problem inside our hearts, not outside of it. He loved to use the courtroom, the courtroom metaphor a lot in his songs. And everywhere he looked, 
he saw evidence of the verdict against him. When he passes two lovers entwined on a bench, he can't help but interpret their connection as a condemnation of his lack. No judgment escaped his his radar. And when I think about Morrissey, when I would see him in that windowsill and my life in relation to his, I can't help but think of my life without the saving power of God in it. A man made in the image of God prone to the despairs of this fallen world. And it makes me grateful for all the difficult things I've had to endure. None of which, partly because of his lyrics, were a surprise to me. He was also kind of a Jiminy Cricket for me. Whenever self-pity crept in, all it took was a glance his way to remind me that I am more often than not my own worst enemy. Whenever I was tempted to whitewash the, the human condition or offer up some sort of convenient platitude about my diagnosis, should I begin to focus on the, the speck in the eye of others rather than the log in my own? His was the loudest voice in my head to um, object to that. He registered disappointment the loudest in my head. When loneliness set in, he was there to remind me I wasn't alone. This was the case when I was a teenager, and it was the case sitting in that hospital room. Yes, I had friends, family, God himself, others enduring far, more, far worse diagnosis than me. But to see him, though, to remember and to hear his music was to remember that I wasn't alone in my loneliness. This weird, encouraging consolation from God reminded me of what I already knew about God. We need to learn to lean into these kinds of consolations more than our feelings for exactly the reason we get in these next set of verses. Verse 20. Can wicked rulers be aligned with you, those who frame injustice by statute? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. We're going to face not just wicked people, but wicked rulers that make unjust laws. Laws that actually prop up wicked people. And given the context of this psalm, given the news from the past week, We might even face wicked religious leaders that prop up wicked people. The psalmist is crying to God, lamenting to God, God, these wicked religious rulers that claim your name, how can they be allies of you? How can they say they are for godliness and truth and then rule or legislate sin? They are killing the righteous and condemning the innocent. Well, the answer is no. God is not for these people. If you say that you have fellowship with God and you continue to walk in darkness, then God calls you a liar. And you do not represent the truth you claim to live by. You're actually living under a false premise like we saw back in verse 7. The Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. They are not allies of God. And these verses actually begin to set up their destruction. I I don't know the outcome of this psalm, but even thinking about the news from this week, some people will face justice this side of, of heaven. But some will face justice on the other side before God's throne. But make no mistake, The unrepentant wicked will face justice. All of us will face justice. And this is another comfort and another consolation we have as Christians. No one is going to get away with anything. There will always be justice. If not now, then in the future. Because when we face God one day, one of two things is going to happen. Our sin and wickedness will be removed and smothered by Christ and his blood. 
or our sin and wickedness will absolutely condemn and crush us. There's no in-between. That's why the psalmist says in this next verse, but the Lord has been my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. That's the only place we can find safety in this fallen world. Otherwise, we're counted among the unrepentant, counted among the wicked, and we're going to get wiped out and crushed. The psalm begins with two how longs. How long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? And it ends with two wipe them outs. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord God will wipe them out. The psalm begins with trusting God to set things right, and it ends with the same kind of confidence. It ends by reminding us why we don't need to fear man, why we can trust and wholly put our trust in God and not man. And whenever we respond to God in trust and belief, when we respond to the good news of his son Jesus, justice is actually taking place right then and there. We are coming under the covering of his grace. The foundation of our eternal life is being supported by none other than Jesus, our rock. He becomes our firm foundation in the midst of trials. He becomes our safety in times of trouble. The justice that you and I deserved because of our sin, the justice that demands that our sin and wickedness be punished and crushed, is now placed on Jesus who was crushed in our place. He is our substitute. It's not that justice doesn't happen It's just that for those who have trusted in Jesus for our salvation, the justice that we deserve is poured out on Jesus. And instead of judgment, we get his righteousness. His right standing before a holy God. The penalty for our wickedness is still met and doled out. But if you are outside of that covering, if you are unrepentant in your sin and wickedness, if your foundation isn't found on the rock of Christ... The scripture here is actually pretty blunt and it's pretty clear. Your own sin will crush you and God's going to wipe you out. Scar's unrepentant wickedness in The Lion King leads him to an ignominious end. An end, if you remember, with red glows of fire all, all around him. Curled teeth surrounding him with the um, uh, hyenas. Death creeping up on him. His back to the wall as the camera slowly pans up. And then we see sort of um, a shadow play as he is met with damnation and death for his wicked deeds. There's no contrition. So there's no atonement from scar. This is the picture we are given of what will happen to the unrepentant wicked in this text. We might think that some people are getting away with their wickedness, but Psalm 94 consoles us by saying, no, there will be justice. We will all face God's judgment one day, but till then, wisdom dictates that we trust God, trust that he will return and do what he says he's going to do. And this should, this should be a comfort to us. Even as we lament Rwanda and the genocide there, as we lament racism today, as we lament the wickedness down in Texas and wickedness among religious leaders, I know that many of you ache whenever you watch the news. I expect that many of you in here are longing for the day when God sets all of the wickedness we see around us right. When all of the true injustices of the world are righted. When wickedness is genuinely judged and God's justice reigns. We can have confidence today. Not because we're moral, upstanding Americans. Not because we've paid our dues and experienced hardships. 
we can have confidence to say that when God sets the things of this world right and judges each and every one of us, he will do so because for our sake, he made Christ to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. In Christ, there is a refuge from the calamities of this world, a rock that provides sure footing in our shaky, our shaky culture and a stronghold from the wickedness we see all around us. If you are in Christ today, you can have confidence that on the day of judgment, when God sees you, he won't see a wicked, sinful person. Because if he did, he would have every right to wipe you out. That's what we deserve. But that's not what we get because of Christ. God has made a way for sinners like me, sinners like you, to be right with him through Christ, to be brought near and redeemed. There's no other way to escape the judgment of God except by putting your full faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone, and you can do that today. Ask him. Ask God to save you. Repent and turn to him. Christian, if the cares of this world weigh you down, cast them on Jesus today. Let him bear the heaviness you feel. Find your rest in him today. Let's, let's pray. Father, thank you for the comfort and the conviction that your word brings today. In the midst, in the midst of a heavy week, let your word be a consolation to us today. I pray for those in here, in here who know you, who find themselves safely on your rock of refuge. I ask that you would continue to discipline our hearts to weather the wicked difficulties in this life. Help us to recognize and welcome how your Holy Spirit teaches us and trains us through trials and troubles. Train us now for an, for an eternity of knowing and glorifying you. And Father, help us to not fall into a despair that forgets, that forgets you or doesn't see you working in our midst. Help us to not grow weary with the things of this world and overlook our brother and sister in need or our neighbor in need. Keep us from prevailing on your grace where we feel free to revel or exult in sin. Keep us from marring your images and likeness which you've stamped on us for others to see. Help us to put to death the wickedness in us. Help us to be disciplined by your spirit and your word and help us to walk each day knowing that as each foot comes down. It is not on the shaky ground of this word, this world, but on the sure footing of faith in Jesus Christ, our stronghold, in whose name we pray today. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Shelby Murphy, given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www dot redemptionhill dot com